Daniel stands before the ruler and the authority of the metaphorical kingdom of evil, and the kingdom of evil needs God's anointed to tell him what God said to him. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. So enter into stage left, the queen. So who is this queen? We're not told who she is, but I think I know. I think she was Belshazzar's mother. Here's why I think that. I don't think she was Belshazzar's wife because we were told earlier that the wives were there already. So I don't think she was the wife. So I think she was Belshazzar's mother, so she would be like the mother queen, which again would make her the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. That makes a lot of sense to me as as we go on a little bit further. So the queen comes in, and notice how, A, she wasn't there. She wasn't in the party. So I think that that's going to speak to us something about some disapproval. Like maybe she doesn't approve of what my son's doing. He's in there. He shouldn't be in there. They shouldn't be doing this right now. There's Persians at the gate. Maybe she disapproves. That's why she's not there. But then notice how she easily enters. And think of the story of Esther. Remember how Esther was the queen too. And remember, she could not just enter when she wanted under risk of her own life. This queen just walks right in. Okay? Your mama always can just walk right in, right? I mean, even if her son is the king, she can just... If she's the mama, she can just walk right in. So I think she's the king's mother, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And the other reason I think that is because of what she's going to say to Belshazzar. The queen, because of the words of the king and the lords, came to the banqueting hall. So she hears. She's heard all night this party going on, music, laughing, and then it stops. She hears the screams. She hears Belshazzar shouting, bring in the magicians. And she says, let me go see what's going on. So she goes in there, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. (laughs) Just a little bit of irony there. He's not going to live a matter of hours, maybe minutes. O king, live forever. Let your thoughts, let not your thoughts alarm you. Again, let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. His color's already changed, and something else has already changed. He needs to change his clothes. There was a there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, not your literal father, but her literal father. So now, I kind of pick up on, my father wouldn't let this happen. My father was smarter than this. My father built this kingdom. And you are letting it be destroyed in one night with your foolish partying, with your pride. Nebuchadnezzar, as we said, was the greatest king of Babylon. He was, he was a pagan, but he was a great king. And you can hear it in her voice. My father, look at what you've done to my father's kingdom. There was a man in my father's day. He knew these things. Your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. My father made him chief. You haven't even asked him. 
Because of an excellent spirit. Now listen to this. An excellent spirit. Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams. Explain riddles. Now we're not... We haven't been told about Daniel's ability to explain riddles, but apparently he could. And solve problems. They were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So I pick up on a little bit of sarcastic rebuke here on the part of Queen Mother. Son, you need to stop this foolishness. You need to get your act together. And you need to consult with the people that my father knew had the answers. You need to consult with this man, Daniel. And listen to the, ex- the, the description of him. This excellent spirit that's in him. The spirit of the gods. I don't know if the queen mother had been converted, if she was a believer in the living God. Perhaps she was, or perhaps she has just this great respect for him. But in the description of Daniel, do you hear somebody else in there? You hear Joseph too. But somebody else is coming through loud and clear. Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that just screaming to us of Jesus? This is like what I would call a Messiah motif. This is speaking to us, not just of Joseph from, I think it's Genesis 43, where Joseph is also, Pharaoh says of Joseph, there's an excellent spirit in him. There's a spirit of the gods in him. Not just what Paul will say in 1 Timothy 4 or 2 Timothy 4 about how it is that an elder of the church should be well thought of by outsiders, but this goes way above that. This is speaking to us something that points us to the same spirit that's described in Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, a couple of hundred years prior to this, wrote in chapter 11 of Isaiah, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Does that sound like Daniel? Now, Daniel is not the Messiah, obviously. But here we have, once again, something in the Old Testament that's pointing us to Jesus, that's saying to us, look for Jesus. Look for one who has this spirit. Look for one who, thinking maybe of Moses, look for one who is a mediator like Moses. Look for one who is a lawgiver like Moses. Look for one who is a king like David. Look for one who has faith like Abraham. Look for one who has defeat over his enemies like Samson. Look for one who has faith like Gideon. And that's what the Old Testament speaks to us all along. It points us. Alistair Begg puts it this way. When we read our Old Testaments, we should feel the Old Testament pushing us to Jesus. Pushing us to Jesus. The Puritans would describe it this way. Now, the Puritans, if they had a way with anything, it was words. And the Puritans would put it this way. The Old Testament is like the swaddling cloths of Jesus. Remember the swaddling cloths in Luke chapter 2? The infant was wrapped in swaddling cloths. And they used that picture to say, this is what like the Old Testament is to the Messiah. It swaddles Him and brings Him to us and teaches us to look for Him and to anticipate Him. He will have a spirit like this man Daniel. So here's this man Daniel that somehow the queen mother thinks so highly of him. And she says, bring him in. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. I would assume very slowly. 
He's probably not walking too spryly right now. Maybe he's sort of just walking slowly. But he's brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel. Now, one of the things, don't get me wrong, I'm not questioning scriptures, obviously, but one of the things I wish that the scriptures would say to us is the tone that was used. Because so often, don't you just want to know the tone? Because you can say the same thing at least two ways. So maybe he said, you were that Daniel that did this and did this? Maybe he said that. I don't think so. Because that doesn't fit the point of the story. That doesn't fit the context whatsoever. Here's the way I think Belshazzar said that. You are that Daniel? That word that? Third person pronoun? I mean, that speaks to me of condescension. You are that Daniel? You? You're an 80-year-old man. You? I didn't mean to look at you, brother, when I said that. (laughs) You are that Daniel? You got to be kidding me. This man reeks of his own waste. His breath reeks of wine and liquor. He's white as a sheet. He has no answers. And he is still pridefully condemning, arrogant. This, brothers and sisters, is a picture of the king of the kingdom of evil. Prideful, arrogant to the very end. You are that Daniel? You're one of the exiles of Judah. You're nothing but a slave boy. You mean a slave boy is going to give me the answers that they couldn't give me? Whom the king my father brought from Judah? Yeah, we conquered your people. We showed you who the stronger nation is. We showed you who the stronger God is. We conquered you. We took you from that land. You see all these cups and trays? We stole them from your temple. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not, and you are? But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, if you can do it, I'll pay you whatever. I will buy my spiritual salvation. Whatever I've got the kingdom. I'll give you the kingdom. He is, again, the illustration of the prideful fool just before the fall. As Proverbs 16 tells us, pride goes before the fall. And nowhere is it illustrated more plainly than the metaphorical king of the kingdom of evil. Pride goes before his fall. As likewise, he is also an illustration of the fool who will pay anything in order for his soul to be saved, like Mark chapter 8 reminds us of. So then he offers this clothing, gold chain, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Keep your purple robe. Keep your gold chain. You know what? I've got all the gold chains I want. I've got all the purple robes I want. Can you see just this picture of dignity? This man who has walked with God for at least 
66 years now. And he, in his feeble physical nature, probably bent over, maybe can't even stand straight, all wrinkled and just old man standing before this 36-year-old king who in his pride and in his soiled robes still is arrogantly insulting him. And Daniel says, you keep your stuff. Because my God is the living God. I don't care what you could give me. Do you think what you can give me? Do you think that I want that? When I know the living God? I know the one who wrote that. Not only do I know what he wrote, I know who wrote it. And you think that your robe is something that I want? He's untempted by the riches that are offered him. He has a common spirit in common with Paul, of course, from Philippians 4, when Paul says, I've learned. I've learned how to have nothing and be content. So he tempts him with the robe, the chain. He wants none of it. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretations. In other words, I want you to know what God said. God wanted you to know what he said. That's why he wrote it. He didn't write it to be a mystery. He wrote it to be understood. And I am here to make it understood. I will tell you the interpretation because as always, this has always been the case, the world needs God's anointed to interpret to them God's words to them. God has always spoken to His creation. Since God created this world, God has spoken to His creation. He has spoken to His creation through general revelation. The the heavens declare the glory of God. And He has spoken to His creation through His written Word, but the world has always needed the anointed of God, meaning the church, to tell them what God says to them. The world needs the church to say, look, the heavens, they're declaring the glory of God. The creation is declaring the glory of God. The creation is not declaring the glory of evolution, it's declaring the glory of God. The world has always needed the church to say that. The world has always needed the church to say, this is what the Word of God says. Does the Scripture teach that? Absolutely, absolutely it teaches that. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. So that, Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Daniel stands before the ruler and the authority of the metaphorical kingdom of evil and the kingdom of evil needs God's anointed to tell him what God said to him. So I'll tell you what he, what he wrote. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father. So before he tells him, he's going to give him a history lesson. His mother tried to give him a history lesson, which by the way, Belshazzar knows this. This is not new information to Belshazzar. He knows what happened to his grandfather. The whole kingdom knows what happened to his grandfather, how his grandfather was given the mind of a beast, the claws, the long hair for the period of seven seasons. He knows this, but Daniel is going to remind him before he tells him the interpretation. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. You're no king, Belshazzar. Your grandfather was a king. You're no king. He held the kingdom together. He built the kingdom. You're nothing compared to him. And yet God put him there 
How much more did God put you there? And God humbled him. How much more can God humble you? You, Belshazzar, are no Nebuchadnezzar. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his, from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that of the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Remember? The king's heart is like a stream in the hand of the Lord. He guides it where he will. The king Nebuchadnezzar, the great and mighty, the king who was five times the king of Belshazzar, still was putty in the hands of the living God. You think that you are going to pull out these cups and these trays, Belshazzar, and sit inside your big thick walls, and you think that you are somebody that can flaunt the sovereign God? Well, let me tell you, even your grandfather couldn't do that. He at least learned that lesson. And you, his son, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of the house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, and of bronze, irons, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose hand are your ways, you have not honored. Count them. Fourteen times. Second Second person pronoun. You and your. Fourteen times. In other words, Belshazzar, this is all on you. This you got nobody to blame but yourself. This is all on you. Look at what he says next. I'm sorry. Verse 22. And you, his sons, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You can't claim ignorance, Belshazzar. You can't claim you didn't know. You can't claim you didn't know about Grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. You can't claim that you didn't know there's a living God. You can't claim that you thought Marduk was really a real God and Bel was really a real God and your, the moon god Sin was really a... You can't claim that. You really knew. Why? Because disbelief in God is a choice. That's what the Scriptures teach us. Romans chapter 1 tells us that all of us know that there is a true living God. For what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, just like you, Belshazzar, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. You can't claim ignorance. You can't claim that you didn't know. You can't claim nobody ever told you. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, was well known for saying, someone asked him one time what he was going to, if, if he died and find out that this God that he didn't believe in was really real, what would he say to him? And Bertrand Russell said, when I, if he is real, I will say to him, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. How wrong he was. Because the Scriptures teach us, disbelief in God is a choice. Belief in God is not. All are born knowing in your soul There is a living God. If you choose to disbelieve in Him, that is your will and your choice. But no one chooses to believe there is a God. We all are born in the image of God knowing that He exists and knowing that He created us and knowing that that we have sinned against Him. 
So he says this scathing condemnation to Belshazzar, this scathing uh, indictment of his, not his ignorance, but his willful sin. So he says, God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. In fact, you have, that's an understatement, you have dishonored. Now verse 24, then from his presence the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsim. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So there's the interpretation. Three words, one repeated twice, four words on the wall. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and your kingdom is divided and now given. And so that very night, we're going to read in just the next sentence, that very night Belshazzar is killed. Now, compare for just a moment Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Remember last week how we noted just the the patience that God displayed with Nebuchadnezzar? The long-suffering, how... He was patient with Nebuchadnezzar, sent the two dreams, and then after the second dream gave him another year. Belshazzar doesn't seem to get that same treatment from from God. Here comes the hand, the writing, the interpretation. Boom, he's dead. The point there is this. We must never presume upon the mercies of God. God in His wisdom and in His sovereignty will sometimes grant extended periods of patience with us. And sometimes none. In His goodness, in His perfect wisdom, sometimes He gives time to repent. Sometimes He doesn't. We must never, we must never hear the Spirit speaking into our heart and ever put it off even for an hour. Belshazzar probably barely had another hour to live. And God in His wisdom did not see fit to give Belshazzar multiple opportunities. So that very night, that very night He's going to be killed. The way that the Persians came into the city was masterful. Remember how the river Euphrates flowed under the walls of the city? Well, General Darius had been working to divert the Euphrates. And they dug these channels and they actually diverted the river so that it dried up and the Persian army simply walked underneath the walls. And there wasn't even a fight. Shows us, I think, something of the end of the kingdom of evil. How this kingdom of Babylon that is the prototypical kingdom of evil, finally when they meet their demise, it wasn't even a fight. In the same way, when the kingdom of evil finally meets its ultimate demise, it's not going to be a fight. There, there's no battle of Armageddon in which there's this, these two forces fighting each other. It's a slaughter. It's, it's a slaughter in which the King of kings and the Lord of lords slaughters His enemies. There's no battle to take place. In the same way that there was no battle for Babylon, the enemy simply walked right in. But then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So so Belshazzar at least stuck to his word. Even though this robe, Daniel didn't want it, the chain he didn't want it, and it's only going to be on him for a matter of maybe minutes or maybe a couple hours and the Persians are coming in. 
But nevertheless, Belshazzar does this. And I think that we see here just this final picture of the kingdom of evil as it faces the righteous chosen one of God and how the righteous chosen one of God in his elderly 80-year-old body it's almost like he's the object of worship of the king of the kingdom of evil. Reminds me, of course, of Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Or we look to Revelation 13 and Revelation 18, when we hear the angel crying out, fallen, fallen is the kingdom of Babylon. And those final days, that final moment of judgment, there will be worship. Not us, not Daniel, but remember Daniel is a messianic figure. And so there will be worship at the final defeat of the kingdom of evil. Then Belshazzar gave the command, Daniel was clothed. Verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So the final thing that we'll wrap up and say is this. Daniel's life to this point is the picture of one who will leave vengeance to God. He leaves the vengeance to God. God says, I will not be mocked. And if there's a chapter in Scripture in which God is mocked, it's this one. But He says, I will not be mocked. Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is mine. And I will have vengeance. God takes His vengeance here upon the kingdom of evil. Daniel never sought it. Daniel never asked for it. But God takes the vengeance for him. I have found in my walk with Christ that that is one of the hardest things to do. To let the vengeance be God's. To let my defense be God's. To keep my mouth shut when I want to defend myself. When I wish for vengeance to be taken, instead to leave it to the Lord, that is one of the hardest things that I've found to do. Daniel shows us as this messianic figure, the one who is endowed with the spirit of wisdom, he shows us. When you leave vengeance to the Lord, that vengeance is perfect. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.